Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. Beginning this morning, we're going to have a very short series from the prophet Habakkuk. It's only three chapters, the book, just 55 verses. We'll preach it in three messages, one chapter per message. Let me give you a little bit of introduction before we get into chapter one. Who is this prophet? We don't know anything about him. Uh, there's no details in the book or elsewhere in the scriptures concerning him. Anything we could say about him personally is conjecture, so we won't go there. It would seem, though, that perhaps he's sort of well-known to the people because unlike some other prophets, we're not told who his father is or where he's from, so he was perhaps somewhat well-known to the people. <clears throat> Given the contents of the book and what we know from other biblical books and from secular history, it is extremely likely that this book was written about 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. We can nail it down based on what's in the book and what we know of history to a a range of about 609 B.C. to 605 B.C. He was a contemporary prophet. He prophesied, he preached at the same time as Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zephaniah. God sent five prophets in that time frame to preach to his disobedient people. What is going on at the time that Habakkuk writes? What is taking place? You might have noticed from the verses that our brother Joey read that he talked about violence. He talked about the law not being enforced. There were situations amongst God's people that God did not desire, that God had commanded against in the law of Moses, and they were neglecting the law of Moses, and they were engaging in immorality and idolatry. And he sees this, he sees all this evil, first amongst the people of God, and then in the world. And he has a problem with this. Why is there all this evil? Why doesn't God do something about this evil? The time was very uncertain, especially after he got the Lord's answer on how the Lord was going to deal with the evil amongst his people. The future became very uncertain in terms of how will his day-to-day -day life be benefited or blessed or suffer trials and tribulations in life. It was uncertain what the days of ahead precisely held for him and for the people of God. How appropriate when we look out on the state of the church 
in this country today. How appropriate when we look further out at the state of our country and of the world. In every area or sphere of life, it seems that things are progressively getting worse and worse and worse. In the educational sphere, in the political sphere, in the social sphere of life, things that would have been unheard of, unthought of even 50 years ago, are now the norm. And like a sled going down a slippery slope in every area, we are sliding down faster and faster and faster to who knows what. I don't know. You don't know. Times are indeed uncertain. It's easy to trust God in certain times, in times of blessing, when everything is rosy. It's a little more difficult to trust in God as times become a little more uncertain. But at least we have our bank accounts in case God somehow lets us down. We can fall back on them and we'll be okay. But when times are totally uncertain, when we don't have the resources to meet the daily demands of life and the trials of life, it becomes very, very uncertain. What will happen to me tomorrow? What evil will overtake me? What trial will come upon me? And that's when we need to trust in God in those most uncertain times. The title of today's message. Okay, you'll need to sequence the slides because that's not working either. Next slide, please. The title of today's message is Trusting in God When We Don't Understand His Plan. God had a plan. He would tell it to Habakkuk. But when we don't understand his plan, that's when we need to trust in him. In this chapter, God is revealed as the God who has a ready answer and a plan for every aspect of life. If you take only one thing away, next slide, please. If you take only one thing away from this message today, let it be this. God wants you to always trust in Him and His plan for your life. Regardless of the circumstances you may find yourself in, God is always in control. Don't despair of that. He's always in control. Next slide, please. We're going to examine this chapter under three headings. The first one is a question. Habakkuk basically asks this question, God, what will you do about evil in the world? It's a question we've all had. It's a question that man has asked for thousands of years. 
It's a question, the problem of evil is often thrown out there by atheists and skeptics to try and discredit God and God's Word, the Bible. God is going to answer that in the second heading. God is going to explain that He will deal with evil in His time and in His way. And after hearing that answer, Habakkuk then has another question. God, your answer does not seem right. And perhaps we've all experienced that when God has revealed His will in our life through what transpires, we think, that doesn't seem right. Or we read how God deals with people in His Word, and we scratch our head and we think, that doesn't seem right to me. Next slide, please. So let's get right into the very first heading. God, what will you do about evil in the world? When I raise my hand, just sequence the slides. Habakkuk's questions come from a place, come from a feeling of being abandoned by God. I think we all, or most of us, could probably relate to that. Have you ever felt that you have been abandoned by God? How does that come out in the prophet's writings? He says in verse 2, How long, Lord, must I cry for help? But you do not listen. I call out to you, violence, but you do not intervene. He puts in his opening words in verse 2, How long? He doesn't just say, Lord, I've been praying to you for a while. I've been crying out for a while for help. No, he says, how long? There's a note of disappointment there. There's a note of anger there in his words. How long, Lord, must I cry for help? It's not just from these words that we get this idea, but from the two buts. But you do not listen. Have you ever felt that? You've prayed so hard about something that was so important to you or a loved one in your life, and you don't get the answer that you were hoping for. It's like God is not answering you at all. Does he even hear my prayers? That's what the prophet is going through. He feels abandoned by God. It's as if God is not listening to his prayers. I call out, he even gives them a reason why God should respond right now. Violence. There's violence amongst the people of God in the southern kingdom of Judah and in Jerusalem. Violence. But you don't do anything about it, God. You don't intervene. Do you understand what's going on here? This is not only true of the prophet. This is true of every one of us when we question God in this way, it's okay to ask questions. It would have been fine if he said, Lord, I cry to you for help and I'm waiting for the answer. Why does it delay? But the way he asks these questions and the way he objects to try and reveal that God is wrong, here's what he's doing. 
God is the judge of all. Instead, what the prophet has done and what you and I do, when we question God in the same way, we take God off of His judgment throne and we seat ourselves upon that very throne. He is passing judgment on God. God, you're not listening. That's wrong. He's not happy about that. Violence, but you don't do anything about it. That's not right. I would do something about it if I were able to. He's passing judgment on God. He is taking the position of God. He's not allowing God to be God. And he's condemning God with his attitude that is behind these questions. The problem with doing that, if you and I do that, during some trial in life, we don't like the way it's going. This is not the way I would have planned my life. This is not how I would have had that decision turn out or these circumstances turn out. I would change that situation. I would change my circumstances. We take God off of his throne, we seat ourselves on there, and we pass judgment on God and what he's doing. The problem with that is, when we are the judge, when we decide what's right and wrong, we will often go to sinful means to change our circumstances, to change our situation in life. God needs to always be God. We are His creature. We can never take His place. He knows better than you and I. The evil that you see in the world, does that trouble you? The prophet says, why do you force me to witness injustice? Why do you put up with wrongdoing? Again, he's asking questions, and he's, in these questions, he's revealing that he thinks God is wrong. Why do you force me to witness this? I shouldn't witness this. Later on, he's going to say, your eyes are too holy to look on evil. Here he's saying, I'm too holy to look on evil. Why are you doing this to me? I shouldn't have to witness these things going on in my life. Why do you put up with wrongdoing? Destruction and violence confront me. Conflict is presence, is present, and one must endure strife. Have you seen the evil that's in the world? Look around the world. Do you recognize evil? We all know that something is not right. It's not as it should be. In the world at large, in this country, sometimes even in the church, we have seen evil rear its ugly head. We look out and we see it. None of us as believers in Christ will deny the fact that there is evil in the world. We know something's not right. We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. But there's one thing we miss when we see all the evil out there. We're only looking out there. We're failing to look in here. Do we recognize there's evil in here? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, 
reveals so plainly that there's not just evil out there, but there's evil in here. He bore our sins in His body on the cross, the Scripture says. It was our sins, our evil, that He bore. Whenever you see evil out in the world, pray about it. But ask God about the evil that still resides in here. None of us are perfect. There's evil in here. Let the evil out there in the world remind us of the evil that's in here and make that an object of prayer as well. Have you ever felt that God is not in control? The prophet writes, for this reason, the law, the law of Moses, lacks power and justice is never carried out. Indeed, the wicked intimidate the innocent. For this reason, justice is perverted. The powerful were oppressing the weak. The wealthy were taking advantage of the poor. The judges, the courts in Israel were not blind. They did not give out justice. They favored the powerful. They favored the rich. The law of Moses was not being followed. He feels as if God is not in control. This is the law that God gave. Why isn't God enforcing this law? Have you ever felt that God is not in control? A major theme of Scripture, and the reason why it comes up in so many of the messages here, and why it will come up in this message as well, is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God simply means God is in control. He has a plan, and He has the desire and the power to bring that plan to pass exactly as He has planned it. He is sovereign. Now, there's some people who don't believe in the sovereignty of God, even some Christians. Well, if God is not in control, who is in control? There's a limited number of options as to who's in control. Is it God? Is it Satan? Is Satan in control? Are we willing to say that? Scripture doesn't teach that. But if Satan is in control, you have no hope. There is no guarantee that Jesus Christ will ever return, establish his kingdom, come for his bride, take his bride home, if Satan is in control. Well, we know from Scripture Satan's not in control. Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, he was powerless to do anything except what God permitted. Well, if Satan's not in control, what about nations? Are they in control? No, they're not in control. Ukraine's not in control. They would have loved to stop Russia from invading. The United States not, is not in control. They can't stop Putin. Nations are not in control. God raises them up according to Scripture and He brings them down. And there's going to be an example of this in this chapter. Are you and I in control? If you and I are in control, and I don't think any of us would ever say that, why does any bad thing enter our life? Are we bad and we're trying to punish ourselves? We're clearly not in control. Satan's not in control. 
Nations are not in control. We are not in control. Is anyone in control? If things just happen, why don't more bad things happen in our life? Look at our life. Overall, it's pretty good. It's not that we haven't had tragedies and trials in our life, but they don't happen every day. If things just happen randomly, you'd expect 50% of the time bad things would happen. You'd have a terrible day. But we don't. Someone is clearly in control. The only option on the table is that God is in control. He is sovereign. He has His reasons for allowing evil. Let's, we've seen how there is evil in the world, and it's only natural to ask the question, God, what will you do about evil in the world? Now God is going to answer the prophet, and He's going to answer you and I. Basically, he's going to explain that he will deal with evil in his time and in his way. Since God is going to answer this question, be ready for God's answer and know this, you're going to be amazed by his answer. Even in your own life, when you find out the answer to some of these questions as revealed in his word, sometimes you're just amazed. The reason why God doesn't always answer right away, it's not a problem with God. It's we're not ready for the answer. The problem is with us. We're not going to be awed by the answer. We're not going to be shocked by the answer to that question. But be ready for it. God is speaking now, beginning in verse 5, and he says, Look at the nations, pay attention. You will be shocked and amazed for I will do something in your lifetime that you will not believe even though you are forewarned. God's answer to the problem of evil in the world is amazing. We could not conceive of such an answer. The prophet couldn't conceive of an answer to the evil that he saw in the world with his own eyes. Be ready for God's answer and know that not only will you be awed by it, amazed by it, but you might not like his answer. God doesn't check for our approval. He doesn't say, Paul, I'm planning to do it this way. What do you think about that? He doesn't say that. He doesn't ask my opinion. Sometimes we might not like God's answer. And the prophet has a real problem with this. And if we're to be honest, sometimes we do as well. We want what we want when we want what we want. We want it the way we want it, not the way God wants it. He says this to the prophet. Look, I am about to empower the Babylonians. They sweep across the surface of the earth, seizing dwelling places that do not belong to them. God does not dispute with the prophet that there's evil amongst his people. Instead, he says, here's how I'm going to deal with this evil. I'm going to empower the idolatrous Babylonians. They had already 
conquered the Assyrian Empire. They conquered their capital city of Nineveh. When the Assyrians fled to Haran, they went hundreds of miles west to Haran and defeated them. Three years later, they escape again down to a city called Karchemesh in northern Syria. The Babylonians come down again and defeat not only them, but the Egyptians that went up to support them. They're sweeping across the entire Middle East. No one can stand up to the Babylonian Empire. They are ungodly. They are wicked. The things they would do to the people that they captured rivaled what the Assyrians did. They were not a better people. They were certainly not a better people than even the ungodly Jews. And the prophet will reference that. We know from the verses that follow that when God tells the prophet, I'm going to chastise my people with the Babylonians, he's beside himself. He can't wrap his mind or his heart around this, that God is going to do something that he never would have thought of. Be ready for God's answer. You may not always like it. But as we explore God's answer in the verses that follow, we're going to find out that God's answer is always the right answer. Our understanding of it is what's flawed. It's not God's answer or God's plan that is flawed. Be ready for God's answer and know that God is sovereign even over evil. God allows evil for His purposes. He always has a purpose. Look, if you read the book of Job, you see God allowed evil. He allowed Satan to harm Job's property, Job's family, and even Job's body. But God's purpose was, in the end, I will bless Job twice as much as before. God had a purpose. And it wasn't just a purpose to bring him glory, but it was a purpose to bless his servant Job. God has purposes. Regarding the Babylonians, Habakkuk says they are frightening and terrifying. They decide for themselves what is right. These are people who didn't even recognize God. They were a God unto themselves. They would decide what's right and what's wrong. I'll not have the God of the Jews rule over me. Exactly what they said regarding Jesus Christ. Away with him. We'll not have this man rule over us. And everyone who rejects the salvation found only in Christ is saying the same thing. They decide what's right and what's wrong. They decide the way to God. Not God. Every time we rebel against God and Christ, we say the same thing. I have no king but myself. I'll not have this man rule over me and tell me what to do. This is exactly what the Babylonians did. They decided what was right and what was wrong. God allowed that for His purposes. 
be ready for God's answer and know that God is sovereign, even over evil's might. In the general sense, He is sovereign over the might of evil. It is not mightier than He is. Their horses are faster than leopards. He's, he's painting a picture here, God is, with His answer. They're faster than leopards. They're more alert than wolves in the desert. Their horses gallop. Their horses come a great distance. Like a vulture, they swoop down quickly to devour their prey. Even this mighty image of an unstoppable ancient army, God is sovereign over that. He is more powerful than that. Be ready for God's answer. Know that He's sovereign. Not merely over the might of evil in a general sense, but even over specific evil deeds. God starts to get more specific in what He's telling Habakkuk. All of them intend to do violence. Every face is determined. They take prisoners as easily as scooping up sand. They mock kings and laugh at rulers. They laugh at every fortified city. They build siege ramps and capture them. God is sovereign over every specific form of evil. There's no evil, either collectively in general or individually, that God is not sovereign over. He can put a stop to it whenever He wishes. Get ready for God's answer and know that God will hold all evil accountable. They sweep by like the wind and pass on but the one who considers himself a god will be held guilty. The Babylonians considered themselves to be gods, that they could do whatever they want, that they could decide what's right and wrong, that they could pass judgment on anything that they didn't like, on any other people. God would hold them accountable. And we know from Scripture and we know from history that he did hold them accountable. Their empire came to an end at the hands of the Medes and the Persians. God raises up empires for His purpose. He raises up nations for His purpose. And when He's done using them, He tears them down. And He would do that with these Babylonians that He says Himself, He empowered to do these things. And He will hold them guilty for their evil. If there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, never trusted in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and raised again the third day, according to the Scriptures, that He was God's Lamb, offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, to take away the sins of the world. That when He hung on the cross, He didn't merely go there to be a good example in suffering for righteousness' sake. He wasn't just a good example. He wasn't just a good teacher. He was God's sacrifice to take away the sin of the world, to provide forgiveness and salvation for all who would repent of their sins, turn from their sins, and turn to God 
and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. All those who reject the only way of salvation, Jesus Christ Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. All who reject that will one day be found guilty before God and be judged by God. I I, I urge you, I, I beg you, turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. If you do not know Him as your Lord and Savior, cry out to Him that He would be merciful to you, a sinner. We all deserve God's wrath and judgment. But Jesus Christ underwent the judgment of God for the sins of the world and will be the Savior of all who trust in Him and Him alone for salvation. We've seen the prophet's question regarding God, what will you do about evil in the world? We've seen that God answered that God will deal with evil in His time and in His way. After hearing that answer, Habakkuk is not satisfied. He thinks, and he actually says to God, your answer doesn't seem right. I don't like that answer, that you're going to raise up the Babylonians to chastise your people. How could you do this? This makes no sense to me, is what he's saying. Let's see how that comes out. You know, it's one thing to understand with your mind that God is in control, that He is sovereign even over evil. And Habakkuk begins his second statement to the Lord in that way. He shows that he understands the theology. Lord, You have been active from ancient times. What he's really talking about is even from eternity. From as long as there has been human history, God has been active. He calls him my sovereign God. He recognizes that God is sovereign. He has no problem stating this. You are immortal, Lord. Meaning from eternity past, God has been active in some way. Not in creation, because He only created creation at a certain point in time. Before that, in the timeless eternity past, God was active amongst Himself in the three persons of the triune Godhead. Lord, you have made them, the Babylonians, your instrument of judgment. I understand what you told me, God. I grasp it. I understand those words. You've made the Babylonians your instrument of judgment. And then he says, protector. Of all the things he could say to the Lord God, he calls him his protector. Uh, Lord, in case you've forgotten, you're supposed to protect us from people like the Babylonians. Protector, you have appointed them as your instrument of punishment. He understood it. He grasped it. And maybe you and I understand that God is sovereign over evil and that He allows evil for His purposes. It's one thing to understand it with your mind. It's quite another thing to feel it in your heart, to feel that God is in control even over evil. Because after stating all these 
correct things about God and what God said regarding evil in the world, he then goes back to what he said at the very beginning, the first time that he spoke before God's answer. Why do you put up with such a treacherous people? He's asking questions again, but not just simple questions. Explain it to me. These are in-your-face pointed questions. This is wrong. How can you put up with these Babylonians, such a treacherous people? Why do you say nothing when the wicked, the Babylonians, devour people more righteous than they are? He agrees that, okay, you're going to punish us with the Babylonians. They are going to devour a more righteous people, the Jews. It's going to come to pass because you are the sovereign God. It's a completely different thing to feel that God is in control over evil. This is the real heart of the matter here. There is no objection to God allowing evil. There is no inconsistency with evil being in God's creation. God created it all very good, according to Scripture. But then sin entered in, and it wasn't God who sinned. It was man who sinned and brought sin into creation. God is not responsible for that. Any more than parents are responsible for the crime of a child that they brought into the world. A child that they created. If a child creates a crime, uh, does a crime, and is sentenced to jail, to prison, should the parents go? Because they brought the child into the world. They allowed that child to be born. They procreated. No, of course not. We don't hold the parents responsible. That's scriptural as well. It's found in Ezekiel. The child will not be held responsible for the sin of the father, and the father won't be held responsible for the sin of the son. God's not responsible for evil. God has his purposes for allowing evil. We'll talk about those a little more in a little bit. God is, it's always a good thing to try and understand anything, but particularly evil, in light of God's holiness. He writes, you are too just to tolerate evil. I, I, I would translate the Hebrew more literally, you have purer eyes than to look upon evil. Remember he said before, why do you make me witness all this evil? Now he says, God, you got purer eyes. You know, you, 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 you should not make me look at this evil. The holiness of God is always the place to start to try and understand evil. Look, without evil in the world, there are a number of things we would never understand about God. You know, it has been written in response to the question, what is the chief end of man? The answer that's given is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Without evil in the world and seeing how God deals with evil, you would never know everything about God. You would, parts of God would be hidden. You wouldn't understand it. You wouldn't be able to enjoy Him forever in a number of ways. If there was never evil in the world that God objected to, you wouldn't know God's holiness. If there was never evil in the world, 
you would never know the wisdom of God to create a plan of salvation to redeem and save His fallen sinful creature man. If there wasn't evil in the world, you would never know the justice of God. That God is just. And He must judge evil. He judged sin at the cross in Jesus Christ when He bore our sins in His body. He will judge the Christ-rejecting sinner one day in the future. You would never know the mercy of God that saves you from an eternity separated from God and Christ. You would never know the love of God for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. You would never know the grace of God that gives us an eternity in heaven with God in Christ. There is so much you would never know. We would never know about God if there were not evil in the world. And we see how God deals with evil, how He dealt with evil in the cross of Jesus Christ, and how He will deal with evil in the future. It is normal to not be able to fit all the pieces together. He says you are unable to condone wrongdoing and he's going to go on to say why do you put up with these terrible Babylonians it's normal to not be able to fit all the pieces of God's plan together in our mind that's not to be unexpected look if if we took Albert Einstein's paper on the special theory of general relativity and we read it Would we understand everything in it? Just read it through once. Would we understand it? No, we wouldn't. If we could understand that paper when we're not physicists specializing in relativity theory, if we understood that from just reading it through once, a cursory reading, you can conclude one of two things. If I could understand that paper just by reading it through once, not working through all the math that I'm unfamiliar with, not rereading paragraphs, just read it through once. If I could understand it all, either I'm as smart as Albert Einstein, which we all know I'm not, or he's as dumb as me, which we know he wasn't. When I read the Bible, I don't understand everything in it. I've spent almost 50 years studying the Bible very diligently. I still have questions. I don't have all the answers. If I could read the Bible and I understood everything in it, you know what I know about the Bible? It's written by someone no smarter than me. I want to put my faith and my eternity in someone like me? (laughs) No way. The fact that I don't understand everything in Scripture tells me that This book has been authored by someone of infinite intellect, so far beyond me, so far beyond you. It gives me hope. It strengthens my faith. What I don't understand actually strengthens my faith. It doesn't weaken my faith. 
We're, it's normal not to be able to understand everything. It's normal to still have questions about God's plan. The prophet writes, so why do you put up with such treacherous people like the Babylonians? Why do you say nothing when the wicked, the Babylonians, will devour? He states it as if it has already happened. When the wicked devour those more righteous than they are. He's convinced that it will come to pass as God said it would. But he still has these questions. It's normal to have these questions. There's nothing wrong with still having questions. When things don't make sense in our mind, know this, they make sense in the mind of God. He understands. It's not so important that I understand. What's more important is that God understands. The, the writer Mark Twain said this, it's not the things that I don't understand about the Bible that bother me. It's the things I do understand. Because he understood, since he rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God was going to be his judge and that he would spend eternity separated from God and Christ. He understood that. That's what troubled him. God has made enough things plain to us that we should focus on what he has revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29, Moses writes this, the secret things belong unto the Lord, but the things which he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. For what purpose? That we may be careful to do all that is written in the law. God has made certain things plain. Those are the things we should focus on, not the things we don't understand. You may even wrongly feel that God is responsible for evil deeds. You made people like fish of the sea, like animals of the sea that have no ruler. You made. This sounds an awful lot like Genesis 3. What have you done here, Adam? Oh, the woman you gave me. She gave to me and I ate. Eve, what have you done? The serpent deceived me and I ate. But Adam says, the woman you gave. He blames God. You gave me her. You made people. This is the way we are. We blame God for things that we are responsible for. What you see doesn't fit with what you know about God. The Babylonian tyrant pulls them up with a fish hook. He hauls them in with his throw net. When he catches them in his drag net, he is very happy. Look, we see evil in the world. We see things that go on. And we wish they would be different. We wish people we share the gospel with would humble themselves, acknowledge that they're sinners deserving God's wrath and judgment, we want them to turn to Christ, but they reject Him. We see other forms of evil in the world, and we wish that it didn't happen. We don't understand, just like Habakkuk, how could God let this happen? Here's something to always remember. You've heard me say this before, but it's appropriate to repeat it here. When I don't understand certain things about God's plan and the way his creation is functioning, 
and, and the way my life is turning out, the way certain things have happened, and I don't understand them, and I think this can't be right. It must be wrong. It, it, I, I would do it different. Here's my go-to position. I know this, that when it comes to his children, our Father in heaven is too wise to ever make a mistake and too loving to ever do anything unkind. His way is always the right way. It comes from a wise mind and a loving heart. When I don't understand what's going on, I trust in the character of my loving Heavenly Father. That He is doing the right thing. He is doing the best thing. And in fact, since He's perfect, He can only do perfect things. You can't improve on perfection. There's not perfection and a little better perfection. Perfection is perfect. There's nothing better. James says all of God's gifts are perfect. Deuteronomy 34, 2 says, all your works are perfect. Psalm 18, 30 says, all your ways are perfect. Psalm 119, verse 68 says, you are good and you do good. James says, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Everything God causes to come into our life, even the tragedies, even the trials, is perfect. He can't do any less than perfect. If he ever did one thing less than perfect, he's not perfect. And then all bets are off because he could mess up again. But no, God is perfect. Everything that has entered your life and mine is perfect. It can't be improved upon. We're going to understand why in just a moment as we finish up this message. It's normal for you to have questions when you see evil prosper. This is normal. Because of his success, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, he offers sacrifices to his throw net and burns incense to his dragnet. For because of them, he has plenty of food and more than enough to eat. He's prospering. How can this be? It's normal to have questions when evil prosper. Here's your answer to that. God gives it to you in Psalm 73. The psalmist sees the evildoer prospering where he's labored hard and sometimes suffers hardship. And he didn't understand this until he drew close to God. He entered the temple of the Lord and then he saw something. Then I beheld their end, that you have set them on slippery places. You see, what puts evil in perspective is two things. One, drawing close to God. Draw close to God, and you'll begin to understand and be satisfied with God's answer. The second thing is, all these objections about evil whether it be from the atheist and the skeptic, whether it be from the non-believer, whether it be from the believer sometimes, it's because we're looking at the wrong thing. We're looking only at time. 
We need to focus on eternity. Time is a drop in the ocean of eternity. That's all it is. When we only look at the here and now, we only see the evil. We don't see the end of evil and the eternal blessing that's there for all those who trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to change our focus. And then we see God's purpose for evil is to produce, obviously, not the best life now, but the best eternity possible for everyone. When we view eternity through the lens of God's perfection and holiness, that puts whatever happens in our life now in perspective. It's just a drop in the ocean of eternity. Why focus on the drop of now instead of the ocean of eternity? It makes no sense. It makes no sense when you see someone trying to steal your wallet or purse and maybe you have $100 in it. It makes no sense to say, oh, there's a shiny penny on the ground. And you go for the shiny penny. Oh, I got a penny, but I lost my wallet or my purse. That makes no sense. Focus on eternity and everything else begins to come into focus. We have the right perspective. Paul writing to the Colossians says this, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. That puts everything in focus. There's, a, there's an old hymn that says this, Fix your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. God, why does it seem that there'll be no end to evil? Every morning we wake up and we look at the news, or at the end of the day, maybe we look at the news, whether it be online or on the television or however, uh, the radio, and it seems like there's no end to evil. The prophet writes, will he then continue to fill and empty his throne at the Babylonians? Will this go on forever? Will he always destroy nations and spare none? The answer to this question is found in Scripture as well. In Acts 17, preaching to the Greek philosophers, Paul the Apostle, in the Areopagus on Mars Hill, says this to them in Acts 17.34, as he's finishing up his gospel presentation to those Greek philosophers. He says this, God has fixed the day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through the man whom He has appointed. And who is that man? Having furnished proof to all by raising Him from the dead. God has fixed the day that He will finally, once and for all, judge evil, put an end to evil. We know from Revelation that there is a coming time where there will be no more darkness, no more night, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin. God has fixed the day. Evil will not have its way forever. God will put an end to it in His time 
and in his way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. Dear God, we thank you that you are in control and that you are bringing forth your plan exactly as you desire it. Oh Lord, strengthen our faith. Help us to focus always on the things above. Help us to focus on eternity instead of focusing just on what is now, what is on this earth. Oh dear God, strengthen us in our most holy faith. Cause us to rejoice in knowing you and your ways and appreciating all the beauty of your plan especially the pinnacle of your plan, the cross of Jesus Christ that has provided us with salvation. Thank you for calling us to yourself, bestowing upon us salvation in Christ and eternal life. And we look forward to the days of eternity when evil will be done away with and we will praise and worship and serve you and enjoy you forever. Thank you so much. We praise your name. Amen.